Act One of The Double Dealer by William Congreve. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Double Dealer by William Congreve. To my dear friend, Mr. Congreve, on his comedy called The Double Dealer. Well, then, the promised hour is come at last. The present age of wit obscures the past. Strong were our sires, and as they fought, they writ, conquering with force of arms and dint of wit. Theirs was the giant race before the flood, and thus, when Charles returned, our empire stood. Like Janus, he the stubborn soil manured. With rules of husbandry, the rankness cured tamed us to manners when the stage was rude and boisterous english wit with art endued our age was cultivated thus at length but what we gained in skill we lost in strength our builders were with want of genius cursed the second temple was not like the first till you the best vitruvius come at length our beauties equal but excel our strength firm doric pillars found your solid base the fair corinthian crowns the higher space thus all below is strength and all above is grace in easy dialogue is fletcher's praise he moved the mind but had no power to raise great johnson did by strength of judgment plead yet doubling fletcher's force he wants ease in differing talents both adorned their age one for the study t'other for the stage but both to congreve justly shall submit one matched in judgment both o'ermatched in wit in him all beauties of this age we see etheridge his courtship southern's purity the satire wit and strength of manly wickery all this in blooming youth you have achieved nor are your foiled contemporaries grieved. So much the sweetness of your manners move. We cannot envy you, because we love. Fabius my joy in Scipio, when he saw a beardless consul made against the law, and join his suffrage to the votes of Rome, though he with Hannibal was overcome. Thus old Romano bowed to Raphael's fame, and scholar to the youth he taught became. Oh, that your brows my laurel had sustained! Well had I been deposed, if you had reigned. The father had descended for the son, for only you are lineal to the throne. Thus when the state one Edward did depose, a greater Edward in his room arose. But now not I, but poetry is cursed, for Tom the second reigns like Tom the first. But let him not mistake my patron's part, nor call his charity their own desert. Yet this I prophesy, thou shalt be seen, though with some short parenthesis between, high on the throne of wit, and seated there, not mine, that's little, but thy laurel wear. Thy first attempt, an early promise made, that early promise, this has more than paid. So bold, yet so judiciously you dare, that your least praise is to be regular, Time, place, and action may with pains be wrought, 
but genius must be born, and never can be taught. This is your portion, this your native store. Heaven, that but once was prodigal before, to Shakespeare gave as much. She could not give him more. Maintain your post. That's all the fame you need, for tis impossible you should proceed. Already I am worn with cares and age, and just abandoning the ungrateful stage. Unprofitably kept at heaven's expense. I live a rent-charge on his providence. But you, whom every muse and grace adorn, whom I foresee to better fortune born, be kind to my remains, and, oh, defend against your judgment your departed friend. Let not the insulting foe my fame pursue, but shade those laurels which descend to you, and take for tribute what these lines express. You merit more, nor could my love do less. John Dryden Prologue, spoken by Mrs. Bracegirdle Moors have this way, as story tells, to know whether their brats are truly God or not. Into the sea the newborn babe is thrown, there, as instinct directs, to swim or drown, a barbarous device to try if spouse has kept religiously her nuptial vows. Such are the trials poets make of plays, only they trust to more inconstancies. So does our author, this his child commit, to the tempestuous mercy of the pit, to know if it be truly born of wit. Critics avaunt, for you are fish of prey, and feed like sharks upon an infant play. Be every monster of the deep away, let's have a fair trial and a clear sea. Let nature work, and do not damn too soon, for life will struggle long ere it sink down, and will at least rise thrice before it drown. Let us consider, had it been our fate, thus hardly to be proved legitimate. I will not say we'd all in danger been, were each to suffer for his mother's sin. But by my troth I cannot avoid thinking how nearly some good men might have escaped sinking. But, heaven be praised, this custom is confined alone to the offspring of the muses' kind. Our Christian cuckolds are more bent to pity. I know not one more husband in the city. If the good man's arms the chopping bastard thrives, for he thinks all his own that is his wife's. Whatever fate is for this play designed, the poet sure he shall some comfort find. For if his muse has played him false, the worst that can befall him is to be divorced. You husbands judge if that is to be cursed. Dramatis Personae Maskwell, a villain, pretended friend to Melophont, gallant to Lady Touchwood, and in love with Cynthia, read by Son of the Exiles. Lord Touchwood, uncle to Melophont, read by Larry Wilson. Melophont, promised to and in love with Cynthia, read by Adrian Stevens. Careless his friend read by thomas peter lord froth a solemn coxcomb read by alan mapstone brisk a pert coxcomb read by mike manalakis sir paul pliant an uxorious foolish old knight brother to lady touchwood and father to cynthia read by todd Lady Touchwood, in love with Melophont. Recorded by Matea Bracic. Cynthia, daughter to Sir Paul by a former wife, promised to Melophont. Read by Lydia. Lady Froth, a great coquette, pretender to poetry, wit, and learning. Read by Devorah Allen. Lady Pliant, 
insolent to her husband and easy to any pretender read by sonia say grace a chaplain read by algy pug boy read by amb sweet 13 footman read by algy pug stage directions read by dave lance the scene the gallery in the lord touchwood's house with chambers adjoining act one scene one a gallery in the lord touchwood's home with chambers adjoining enter careless crossing the stage with his hat gloves and sword in his hands as just risen from table Melifont following him ned ned whither so fast what turn flincher why you will not leave us where are the women i'm weary of gossiping and begin to think them the better company then thy reason staggers and thou art almost drunk no faith but your fools grow noisy and if a man must endure the noise of words without sense i think the women have more musical voices and become nonsense better why they are at the end of the gallery retire to their tea and scandal according to their ancient custom after dinner but i made a pretence to follow you because i had something to say to you in private and i am not like to have many opportunities this evening and here's this coxcomb most critically come to interrupt you scene two to them brisk boys boys lads where are you what do you give ground mortgage for a bottle huh careless this is your trick you're always spoiling company by leaving it and thou art always spoiling company by coming into it pooh ha 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 i know you envy me spite proud spite by the gods and burning envy i'll be judged by Melifont here who gives and takes raillery better than you or i pshaw man when i say you spoil company by leaving it i mean you leave nobody for the company to laugh at <laughs> i think there i was with you ha huh, Melifont? oh my word brisk that was a home thrust you have silenced him oh my dear Melifont, let me perish if thou art not the soul of conversation the very essence of wit and spirit of wine the deuce take me if there were three good things said or one understood since thy amputation from the body of our society <laughs> he i think that's pretty and metaphorical enough egad i could not have said it out of thy company careless huh my what is't oh mon coeur what is it <laughs> nay gad i'll punish you for want of apprehension the deuce take me if i tell you no no hang him he has no taste but dear brisk excuse me i have a little business prithee get thee gone thou seest we are serious we'll come immediately if you'll but go in and keep up good humour and sense in the company prithee do they'll fall asleep else egad so they will well i will i will gad you shall command me from the zenith to the nadir but the deuce take me if i say a good thing till you come but prithee dear rogue make haste prithee make haste i shall burst else and yonder your uncle my lord touchwood swears he'll disinherit you and sir paul pliant threatens to disclaim you for a son-in-law and my lord froth won't dance at your wedding to-morrow nor the deuce take me i won't write your epithalamium 
and see what a condition you're like to be brought to. Well, I'll speak but three words and follow you. Enough, enough. Careless, bring your apprehension along with you. Scene three. Melophont, careless. Pert coxcomb. Faith, tis a good-natured coxcomb, and has very entertaining follies. You must be more humane to him. At this juncture it would do me service. I'll tell you, I would have mirth continued this day at any rate. Though patience purchase folly, and attention be paid with noise, there are times when sense may be unseasonable as well as truth. Prithee, do not wear none to-day, but allow brisk to have wit, that thou mayst seem a fool. Why, how now? Why this extravagant proposition? Oh, I would have no room for serious design, for I am jealous of a plot. I would have noise and impertinence keep my lady Touchwood's head from working, for hell is not more busy than her brain, nor contains more devils than that imagination's. I thought your fear of her had been over. Is not tomorrow appointed for your marriage with Cynthia, and a father, Sir Paul Pliant, come to settle the writings this day on purpose? True, but you shall judge whether I have not reason to be alarmed. None besides you and Maskwell are acquainted with the secret of my aunt Touchwood's violent passion for me. Since my first refusal of her address, she has endeavoured to do me all ill offices with my uncle, yet has managed them with that subtlety that to him they have borne the face of kindness, while her malice, like her dark lanthorn, only shone upon me where it was directed. Still, it gave me less perplexity to prevent the success of her displeasure than to avoid the importunities of her love, and of two evils I thought myself favoured in her aversion. But whether urged by her despair, and the short prospect of time she saw to accomplish her designs, whether the hopes of revenge, or of her love, terminated in the view of this my marriage with Cynthia, I know not. But this morning she surprised me in my bed. Was there ever such a fury? Tis well nature has not put it into her sex's power to ravish. Well, bless us, proceed. What followed? What at first amazed me, for I looked to have seen her in all the transports of a slighted and revengeful woman, but when I expected thunder from her voice and lightning in her eyes, I saw her melted into tears and hushed into a sigh. It was long before either of us spoke. Passion had tied her tongue and amazement mine. In short, the consequence was thus. She omitted nothing that the most violent love could urge or tender words express, which, when she saw, had no effect, but still I pleaded honour and nearness of blood to my uncle, and then came the storm I feared at first, for, starting from my bedside like a fury, she flew to my sword, and with much ado I prevented her doing me, or herself, a mischief. Having disarmed her, in a gust of passion she left me, and in a resolution confirmed by a thousand curses not to close her eyes till they had seen my ruin. Exquisite woman! But what the devil! Does she think thou hast no more sense than to get an heir upon her body to disinherit thyself? Or, as I take it, this settlement upon you is, with a proviso, that your uncle have no children. 
it is so well the service you are to do me will be a pleasure to yourself i must get you to engage my lady pliant all this evening that my pious aunt may not work her to her interest and if you chance to secure her to yourself you may incline her to mine she's handsome and knows it is very silly and thinks she has sense and has an old fond husband i confess a very fair foundation for a lover to build upon for my lord froth he and his wife will be sufficiently taken up with admiring one another and brisk's gallantry as they call it i'll observe my uncle myself and jack maskwell has promised me to watch my aunt narrowly and give me notice upon any suspicion as for sir paul my wise father-in-law that is to be my dear cynthia has such a share in his fatherly fondness he would scarce make her a moment uneasy to have her happy hereafter so you have manned your works but i wish you may not have the weakest guard where the enemy is strongest maskwell you mean prithee why should you suspect him faith i cannot help it you know i never liked him i am a little superstitious in physiognomy he has obligations of gratitude to bind him to me his dependence upon my uncle is through my means upon your aunt you mean my aunt i am mistaken if there be not a familiarity between them you do not suspect notwithstanding her passion for you pooh pooh nothing in the world but his design to do me service and he endeavours to be well in her esteem that he may be able to effect it well i shall be glad to be mistaken but your aunt's aversion and her revenge cannot be any way so effectually shown as in bringing forth a child to disinherit you she is handsome and cunning and naturally wanton maskwell is flesh and blood at best and opportunities between them are frequent his affection to you you have confessed is grounded upon his interest that you have transplanted and should it take root in my lady i don't see what you can expect from the fruit i confess the consequence is visible were your suspicions just but see the company is broke up let's meet em scene four to them lord touchwood lord froth sir paul pliant and brisk out upon it nephew leave your father-in-law and me to maintain our ground against young people i beg your lordship's pardon we were just returning were you son gad's bud much better as it is good strange i swear i'm almost tipsy the other bottle would have been too powerful for me as sure as can be it would we wanted your company but mr brisk where is he i swear and vow he's a most facetious person and the best company and my lord froth your lordship is so merry a man <laughs> oh foy sir paul what do you mean Mary, oh, barbarous, I'd as leave you called me a fool. Nay, I protest and vow now tis true. When Mr. Brisk jokes, 
your lordship's laugh does so become you. <laughs> Ridiculous. Sir Paul, you're strangely mistaken. I find champagne is powerful. I assure you, Sir Paul, I laugh at nobody's jest but my own, or a lady's. I assure you, Sir Paul. How? How, my lord? What, affront my wit? <laughs> Let me perish. Do I never say anything worthy to be laughed at? Oh, foy, don't misapprehend me. I don't say so, for I often smile at your conceptions. But there is nothing more unbecoming a man of quality than to laugh. Tis such a vulgar expression of the passion. Everybody can laugh. Then especially to laugh at the jest of an inferior person, or when anybody else of the same quality does not laugh with one. Ridiculous! To be pleased with what pleases the crowd. Now when I laugh, I always laugh alone. I suppose that's because you laugh at your own jests, egad. Ha, ha, ha. He, he. I swear, though, your raillery provokes me to a smile. Aye, my lord, it's a sign I hit you in the teeth if you show em. He, he, he. I swear that's so very pretty. I can't forbear. I find a quibble bears more sway in your lordship's face than a jest. Sir Paul, if you please, we'll retire to the ladies and drink a dish of tea to settle our heads. With all my heart. Mr. Brisk, you'll come to us, or call me when you joke. I'll be ready to laugh incontinently. Scene 5 Melifont, Careless, Lord Froth, Brisk. But does your lordship never see comedies? Oh, yes, sometimes. But I never laugh. No? Oh, no. Never laugh indeed, sir. No? Why, what do you go there for? To distinguish myself from the commonality and mortify the poets. The fellows grow so conceited when any of their foolish wit prevails upon the side-boxes. I swear, he-he-he-I have often constrained my inclinations to laugh, he-he-he, to avoid giving them encouragement. You are cruel to yourself, my lord, as well as malicious to them. I confess I did myself some violence at first, but now I think I have conquered it. Let me perish, my lord, but there is something very peculiar in the humour. Tis true it makes against wit, and I'm sorry for some friends of mine that write. But, cad, I love to be malicious. Nay, deuce take me, there's wit in it too, and wit must be foiled by wit. Cut a diamond with a diamond, no other way, gad. I thought you would not be long before you found out the wit. Wit? In what? Where the devil's the wit in not laughing when a man has a mind to it? Oh, Lord, why can't you find it out? Why, there tis in the not laughing. Don't you apprehend me? My Lord, 
careless is a very honest fellow but harkee you understand me somewhat heavy a little shallow or so well i'll tell you now suppose now you come up to me nay, nay prithee careless be instructed suppose as i was saying you come up to me holding your sides and laughing as you would well i look grave and ask the cause of this immoderate mirth you laugh on still and are not able to tell me still i look grave not so much as smile smile no what the devil should you smile at when you suppose i can't tell you pshaw pshaw prithee don't interrupt me but i tell you you shall tell me at last but it shall be a great while first well but prithee don't let it be a great while because i long to have it over well then you tell me some good jest or some very witty thing laughing all the while as if you were ready to die and i hear it and look thus would you not be disappointed no for if it were a witty thing i should not expect you to understand it oh foy mr careless all the world allows mr brisk to have wit my wife says he has a great deal i hope you think her a judge pooh my lord his voice goes for nothing i can't tell how to make him apprehend take it other way uh, suppose i say a witty thing to you then i shall be disappointed indeed let him alone brisk he is obstinately bent not to be instructed i'm sorry for him the deuce take me shall we go to the ladies my lord with all my heart methinks we are a solitude without em or what say you to another bottle of champagne oh for the universe not a drop more i beseech you oh intemperate i have a flushing in my face already takes out a pocket-glass and looks in it let me see let me see my lord i broke my glass that was in the lid of my snuff-box <laughs> deuce take me i have encouraged a pimple here too takes the glass and looks then you must mortify him with a patch my wife shall supply you come gentlemen allons here is company coming scene six lady touchwood and vaskwell i'll hear no more you are false and ungrateful come i know you false i have been frail i confess madam for your ladyship's service that i should trust a man whom i had known betray his friend what friend have i betrayed or to whom your fond friend mellifont and to me can you deny it i do not have you not wronged my lord who has been a father to you in your wants and given you being have you not wronged him in the highest manner in his bed with your ladyship's help and for your service as i told you before i can't deny that neither any more madam more audacious villain oh what's more is most my shame have you not dishonoured me no that i deny for i never told in all my life so that accusation's answered on to the next death do you dally with my passion insolent devil 
but have a care provoke me not for by the eternal fire you shall not scape my vengeance calm villain how unconcerned he stands confessing treachery and ingratitude is there a vice more black oh i have excuses thousands for my faults fire in my temper passions in my soul apt to every provocation oppressed at once with love and with despair but a sedate a thinking villain whose black blood runs temperately bad what excuse can clear will you be in temper madam i would not talk not to be heard i have been she walks about disordered a very great rogue for your sake and you reproach me with it i am ready to be a rogue still to do you service and you are flinging conscience and honour in my face to rebate my inclinations how am i to behave myself you know i am your creature my life and fortune in your power to disoblige you brings me certain ruin allow it i would betray you i would not be a traitor to myself i don't pretend to honesty because you know i am a rascal but i would convince you from the necessity of my being firm to you necessity impudence can no gratitude incline you no obligations touch you have not my fortune and my person been subjected to your pleasure were you not in the nature of a servant and have i not in effect made you lord of all of me and of my lord where is that humble love the languishing that adoration which once was paid me and everlastingly engaged fixed rooted in my heart whence nothing can remove em yet you yet what yet nay misconceive me not madam when i say i've had a generous and a faithful passion which you have never favoured but through revenge and policy ha look you madam we are alone pray contain yourself and hear me you know you loved your nephew when i first sighed for you i quickly found it an argument that i loved for with that art you veiled your passion twas imperceptible to all but jealous eyes this discovery made me bold i confess it for by it i thought you in my power your nephew's scorn of you added to my hopes i watched the occasion and took you just repulsed by him warm at once with love and indignation your disposition my arguments and happy opportunity accomplished my design i pressed the yielding moment and was blessed how i have loved you since words have not shown then how should words express well mollifying devil 
and have I not met your love with forward fire? Your zeal, I grant, was ardent, but misplaced. There was revenge in view. That woman's idol had defiled the temple of the god, and love was made a mock worship. A son and heir would have edged young Melophont upon the brink of ruin, and left him none but you to catch at for prevention. Again provoke me. Do you wind me like a larum, only to rouse my own stilled soul for your diversion? Confusion! Nay, madam, I'm gone, if you relapse. What needs this? I say nothing but what you yourself, in open hours of love, have told me. Why should you deny it? Nay, how can you? Is not all this present heat owing to the same fire? Do you not love him still? How have I this day offended you, but in not breaking off his match with Cynthia, which ere to-morrow shall be done, had you but patience? How? What said you, Masquell? Another caprice to unwind my temper? By heaven, no. I am your slave, the slave of all your pleasures, and will not rest till I have given you peace. Would you suffer me? Oh, Masquell, in vain I do disguise me from thee. Thou knowest me, knowest the very inmost windings and recesses of my soul. O oh, Melifont, I burn married to-morrow. Despair strikes me, yet my soul knows I hate him too. Let him but once be mine, and next immediate ruin seize him. Compose yourself. You shall possess and ruin him too. Will that please you? How, how, thou dear, thou precious villain, how? You have already been tampering with my lady pliant? I have. She is ready for any impression I think fit. She must be thoroughly persuaded that Melifont loves her. She is so credulous that way naturally, and likes him so well that she will believe it faster than I can persuade her. But I don't see what you can propose from such a trifling design, for her first conversing with Melifont will convince her of the contrary. I know it. I don't depend upon it. But it will prepare something else, and gain us leisure to lay a stronger plot. If I gain a little time, I shall not want contrivance. One minute gives invention to destroy. What to rebuild will a whole age employ? End of Act One